been enjoying a respite from us, but our assault on your senses is going to continue tonight. We're going to jump back into my favorite time period, my favorite genre, the jet age. Now, speaking of jets, we have our own resident MiG-21 crash landing expert, Steve, on the podcast. Steve, how are you doing tonight? Yeah, doing good. It's not a crash landing if the parachute deploys, so. <laughs> that That's true. Crashed any lately on DCS? I, I, I haven't been watching. I'm sorry. Yeah, all right. Well, no worries about that. We'll we'll catch up with your uh, your misadventures later when you start streaming again. But speaking of MIGs, you know, we've also got the podcast's own expert 3D printer of all MIGs of tiny itsy bitsy little Soviet airplanes. Casey, how are you doing? Good. How are you guys tonight? Doing great. I can hear the printers running in the background, I think. They Not are, me. and that's like the only <laughs> hobby I've done, I think, since we last podcasted, which is absolutely depressing. Yes. And now yes. I'm going to sign off and try to paint something. <laughs> exactly. Now I'm going to quit you so I can get something done. No, totally understand. Well, not to be outdone, and he did ditch us the last time, but we haven't forgot that we have the man with the mythical beard himself, Brett. How are you doing, Brett? I'm good. Uh, Casey was talking about my beard earlier. It's this is all you, your fault, you guys' fault because uh, wasn't this was on a dare before it was, the thing uh, in how, Orlando, how is that right? My fault. You, you took the dare. It is literally your fault. <laughs> well, now Sean likes it, so it's probably here to stay. Excellent. You're my well, favorite hipster. <laughs> That's what I was about to say. Is he going to have the watch cap and everything in a Depicon and have the hipster look? Have, have roll jeans jacket. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Roll jeans with some like old navy peacoat jacket that he's going to walk around in. All right. Oh. So you know how you know how Sean is a fan of fish sticks, right? <laughs> I think yes. I'm going as the Gordon the Gordon's fisherman. That, that would probably the guy on the box for Halloween. Yeah, yeah. Everyone else is dressed up as something Marvel or Star Wars, and we have the Gordon's fisherman. All right. Well. Let's Let's hop into it because we're going to talk about some jet stuff tonight. But uh, first, we want to cover the schedule. Uh, so a couple things coming up. We have NashCon going to be uh, obviously in Nashville, August 18th through the 20th. So next weekend, hopefully right about the time this podcast drops. Uh, I won't be there until probably Sunday, maybe get there Saturday, depending on my schedule. I got a work trip. Uh, but Mike Lewis is going to be running both a, a furball for us on uh, Friday and on Saturday, we'll be running the Blood Red Skies tournament. So that data should all be in the uh, latest events listing. I uh, haven't checked it, but it's supposed to be there. Uh, so show up, play those events, play some Blood Red Skies, play some other things at NashCon, and hang out with Mike and the rest of the crowd there. Uh, Siege of Vicksburg is going to be not in Vicksburg, but still in Mississippi. Uh, so we'll be down there in October. Uh, we'll be doing a Blood Red Skies tournament, the Steve Toth Memorial Tournament. Steve, are you going to fly down for that <laughs> to present awards at your own memorial? Oh, man, I hope so. If I can get off work work that Friday, I, I really enjoyed that tournament down there with Adam. And the, Mike Lewis, I'm sure, will be there again. Yeah, down Mike will be there again. Right? So, so Absolutely. If I can get off work, definitely. 
Nice. Well, we'll go from where it's warm to the frickin' Arctic Circle for our next event. Uh, November 3rd through 5th, fall in, Lancaster, PA. Don't ask me why I'm leaving the South in winter to go where it's cold, but I am. Uh, Casey's going to be there, hopefully. Steve, myself, should have a good time, play a lot of different games. Uh, We will not be hosting a Blood Red Skies event. We're going to kind of be those itinerant gamers. But we'll be there. We'll play uh, some pickup games as well if people want to play Blood Red Skies. But no tournament, no big game. Uh, uh Uh-oh, Senior Brett has a question. I'm going to try and get in on this one. It all comes down to flights. Send me your flight schedules. You heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) Yeah, everybody also heard that Doug's going to be there, right? Damn it. Yeah, so now i got to be there. That, oh, son of a – I hate you guys. You're the worst ever. So, Don't invest so stock in knows, a card clipping clippers yet. Yeah, exactly. So, so everyone knows the other option was I could go to SD HistCon in San Diego where it's warm in November. And, and it's the gaming venues right next to the Stone Brewery. So why would I not go? Oh, no, because I'm going to hang out with all the cool miniatures guys at Historicon. Okay, I see how that is. Anyway. Uh, and then a possible BRS tournament, uh, fall, early winter in Geneseo, New York at the, um, uh, at the air museum there, Steve, anything you want to say about that right now? Uh, no, we're just trying to uh, get something set up there. They already have a little, uh, war games contingent that plays in the museum and, uh, they've played some other games and I just kind of got approached about it. Uh, if we'd be interested in doing a small blood red skies tournament, I know there's some people up in the Connecticut New England kind of area that have uh, been asking about doing something in the Northeast. So hopefully uh, this fall or early winter, we'll be able to uh, do something at the Geneseo National War Plain Museum. So should be a good time. Nice. That's good. Okay. We'll move on from the events and from all the boring stuff and things you don't care about to the main topic for tonight. So we're going to talk about Jet Age rules, specifically missile threat. Uh, but we had to bring in a guest grognard because we've got a limited experience here with missile threat. Chiefly, I've looked at the book, read it, and kind of paged through it and watched some videos. Um, but tonight, we've got Pierce, who's our guest grognard, the double G, as we'll call him. Uh, he's going to roll in and help us a little bit. How are you doing tonight, Pierce? I'm doing good. Thanks for the invite. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely good to have you on. Well, uh, here's your 30 seconds to uh, tell us about your gaming background and how you ended up being such a sad individualist to push little airplanes around a table. Well, I think like most people who ended up like us, um, I got tricked into being a war gamer by Warhammer 40K originally. Um, and then I played that for a couple editions. And then after a couple editions of Punishment, I decided that I wanted to play something that was fun. So I decided to go look at historicals because I was in a passion for history. Um, and I ended up uh, ending up in Flames of War and then from Flames of War to Lacquer Coffins and Missile Threat and a bunch of naval systems and Force on Force and a million different kind of different things just to get away from um, Warhammer 40k, which is funny because I recently picked up Epic in the last two years or so, but you know how that Excellent. works. Excellent. <laughs> You're in good company. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you kind of loop back around. It's like, maybe it wasn't so bad, actually. Yeah. 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 yeah we're going to come back and be like, it still sucks and the people it's still, stink. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. that's all right. You know, I, yeah. I, I'm a huge old school Epic fan. I love playing mm-hmm. it. I'm so excited it's coming back out. Um, it's yeah. just going to crush my pocketbook, but that's all right. I have no money. <laughs> yep. Whatever. It's gaming. It'll be fun. Yeah. Well, cool. 
So tell us a little bit about you playing Missile Threat. How did you get into Missile Threat? And specifically, why did you pick that up versus some other rule sets out there uh, for modern air gaming? Yeah, so um, I had, I was just uh, – at one point I was looking around. I was like, well, you know, jets are cool. Um, I like yes, Ace Combat. Are. I like um, – I think everyone here can agree that planes are cool. Um, it's a pretty safe – that's a pretty safe judgment. Um, <laughs> but uh, yes. Yeah. Um, and I was looking for other kind of systems that were kind of accessible – um and didn't have uh, tremendous pages of charts or that I needed to do mathematical equations to play um and that eventually went through a couple different options and I wound up looking at missile threat which at the time had a couple people that had play tested it and posted kind of their their um their uh, experiences online and so I found it I think I found it on War Games Vault originally um and I downloaded it uh, and I gave it a read through and I was like, oh, this looks accessible. And there's people that make miniatures in the scale and I can find bases from Litco easily and I can put everything together pretty easily. So just from that, I decided I would just roll with that. I uh, tricked some of my friends into playing with me by uh, giving little planes to them. I was like, here, you guys can do this too. <laughs> the first this taste. is fun, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 You know, you kind of like, here, try this out. Yeah. 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 And then, you know, in a month, come back and show me whatever, you know, Vietnamese Air Force or whatever you've put yeah. together, because, you know, yeah. the first hit is, is really all you need. But um, <laughs> yeah, so that's how I kind of came across it. And since then, um, our group that I play with, um, the Union Gang on Facebook, it's our little like game club. We've all kind of slowly trickled into it. And um, we've got a couple of people that play it now. Nice. Nice. Well, like you said, uh, most everyone can find it out there on Wargame Vault. That's where I picked yeah. it up. Um, you can do a digital PDF download. You can buy a hard copy like I did just because every once in a while I like a hard copy manual to go through. Um, it's out there. It's written by Tom Jensen, published by Ostfront. There's videos on YouTube uh, from Tom walking everybody through how how the, the rules and things work. So for me, like you said, it's, it's a pretty accessible game. It's not something that I was, you know, going out and buying a hundred dollar box set and going i don't know what i'm getting here you know if you if you want to hop in for a 12 dollar pdf like everything else it's a pretty easy way to see if it's a game play it once mm -hmm. you like it that's great if not you got your money's worth <laughs> yeah. one game uh, and i think the printed book's like 23 bucks so super super accessible reads well and the thing i i always try to remind people is i'm like it, yeah it's a it's a pretty thick book but it's it's 31 pages of rules the rest of this is reference and campaigns and other cool things you can do, but the rules are, are the, the small part of it. And it has a lot of army lists too, which was impressive. Yeah. Yes. Impressive. Impressively <laughs> daunting at times. Yeah. <laughs> which which is awesome. So it's 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 I shouldn't make fun of, of Tom for putting this much uh, info in there, but holy crap. Yeah, anything you want to do, there's there's an army list for pretty much. So. Yeah, and then you got the you know master aircraft list and the master weapons list, so you can do whatever you want to. Yeah, uh, yeah, you could you could make up anything. And in fact, the, the back of the book also has rules for building aircraft and building weapons and building ships. So there's something that's not in there. It's like, oh, well, this is a plane that exists or maybe doesn't, and I want to stat it out. Right. The the math's in the back. You can just do it. And you don't Which have to great. pay an extra twelve dollars to get all that information or the next book or whatever. Right, it's all just in there. Yeah, um, it comes with a lot. It has like the solo campaign rules. It's got um like the co-op campaigns with like AI control and all sorts of stuff like that. It's a, there's there's a lot going on in there. That's well, definitely something I want you thing. to go into here in a little bit too. Is the campaign once we kind of talk after the sure. mechanics too. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I was I was going to get to that because that's to me one of the the cool parts of it. But I think when I first picked up the rules and flipped through it, rather than being like a lot of air games out there, they're like, hey, here's your airplanes. Here's how you do a dogfight. Oh, by the way, maybe there's Sam's and AAA that'll shoot at you, but that's about it. Now this goes into ground targets, ground objectives, you know, mm-hmm. ground missions, then mm-hmm. air-to-ground stuff. So if you want to kill the guys trying to get the ground mission, so there's there's a constantly evolving story, and I know that's similar to what uh, Cold War ACM and those guys have talked about. That they they everybody likes to have a game that is a little bit larger than just you moving a couple airplanes around. Uh, so that that was pretty cool to me that you had all those different assets that could interact in the game and you, you didn't have to have them but if you wanted to you could put you could build out the rest of the story and the, and the narrative with those pieces yeah and part of that too is it gives a lot of aircraft and weapons a reason to be in the book um yes. for example like the way that the way that the way that deployment works is one of my favorite parts of this game where um you can't deploy where an enemy radar could see you right um so you have so you can appear on the map in most in from in most cases anywhere um, with some with some <laughs> yes, restrictions, that still hurts my head. But yes, <laughs> yeah. I, well, yeah, I understand what they're doing. It, it, exactly, because if you don't see them, you don't know they're there, so they can jump right. you. So right. you want to be exactly. playing with that in mind. It's like, oh, I need to actually be looking and have my aircraft point in the right directions, or I need to have a ground warning radar if you're the defender or if you have ground assets. Um, but then when you start introducing that kind of ground stuff, your opponent's like, oh well, before I actually bring my attackers in or you know bring bring my fighters in, I'm going to run a seed mission. So I can knock out his radar, and then when I knock out his radar, I can deploy way closer to my objective, so I'm spending less time traveling on the table. So all these kind of things build up and they kind of establish on themselves um, in a way that's really satisfying to play and see work out. And it's still fun when it doesn't work out. Um, well, it's funny because I've seen some games that people have narrated on Facebook and put you know snapshots up of it. And some people do it very well, like you're alluding to, that, that, that everything is connected, that because of where <laughs> somebody deployed – one a specific asset that they are then going to react a little bit differently. It's funny because some of them seem like they're still force on force, put everybody on either side and kind of kind of pushing each other. But that's that's how gamers are. A lot of times we'll play a pickup game. We don't want to think about you know complex yeah. deployment zones, things like that. Uh, yeah. But it it does seem like if you want to get kind of down into that more narrative play in your deployment, in your reaction, and how you get into the fight, uh, that it that it really supports it. Yeah, and I think that's really where the the game shines is giving you that space, um, especially because it has a lot of it does a lot of abstractions in order to get to the scale that it's at. So if <laughs> that's someone's an understatement, <laughs> yeah, yeah, a lot of abstractions, um, which is I think for a game like this a good thing. Um, otherwise, I think it would kind of fall over itself, right? And you would be like, okay, it was going to be a twelve hour game because we need to like plot out this thing for the next six hours and right. consult. So if for the sake of gameplay, it does a lot of abstraction. Um, but so if you want like a really simulation jet game, this isn't it. But if you want to have a mission that looks kind of, kind of, you know, convincing where you have your staged assets coming in, you have to run cap for your seed and you have to do all the, if you want to do kind of the big concepts and it have it like play and look good, I think it does that really well. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, let's explain some of the scale to people because sure. they may not understand that. So obviously time-wise it's like 15 to 30 seconds per turn. Um, which is always a, an ish, if flexy, yeah, yeah flexible mm-hmm. thing, yeah. but where it really breaks the mold of a lot of other games. And I think people you've heard me talk about it on the podcast, when I first started reading through the rules, the thing that hurts your head, but is understandable is that it has a sliding ground scale. That the yeah. ground scale is not linear. It, it really varies. And so it, it 
solve some of the problems of I need a football field to play, you know, a strike package yeah. kind of thing at one two hundred scale because because the ranges shift. But when you do that, you can't look at the table and you don't have a mental snapshot of well, everybody's exactly the same distance. So let's yeah. talk about that a little bit. Was that um, was that something that took you a while to get used to, or did did it seem to kind of scale well with everything else you're doing in the game, putting radars down? picking cap points and stuff like that you know what honestly it didn't bother me at all um uh, i'm not even kidding like for me it's one of those things where i kind of understood that it's going to be a game going into it and when i look at stuff in the front of the book it's like oh well you know an inch in this game is 500 meters i'm like whatever just tell me how many inches it's supposed to be because (laughs) whatever you're going to do most of these weapons are going to be in range across like the whole room that you're playing in not just the table like i like i'm not worried about the specifics 40k that last cannon stops at 72 inches 72 inches and then that light stops like a wall yeah you know it's done yeah yeah, just to jump on that too, mm-hmm. I feel I guess I feel kind of well, not any more of an idiot than I usually do, but just playing the game, I thought wait, that wait, the, this, this is not history, so you're not the idiot. This is actually a game, so you're yeah, a yeah, yeah. matter expert. Just playing the game, I thought the ranges looked really good and the ranges for uh engaging and even the ranges uh in the one game we played uh, Pierce started off by deploying an AWACS on the board, right? Mm-hmm. So even the like kind of radar coverage bubble that that gave and the range in inches, like Pierce is saying, it, it looked good and it felt good in the game. I actually didn't realize the actual real range was a sliding scale until right yeah. now that you said it. Because I was kind of doing <laughs> I was kind of doing the math in my head like Pierce was doing. Oh, it's this many inches, it's that many inches. And I think we played on a six by four board yep. and mm-hmm. we did some ground attack and we did some uh, – just to get a feel for the whole thing, did some kind of BVR engagements and then did some close in dogfights. And, you know, it's, it's really a non-issue with the game. It's just more about that eyeball calibration. Like you'd have with any uh, tabletop game for estimating. Right. Well, and we've talked about it with blood red skies. The fact that you have one 200 scale miniatures, you shoot six inches, you know, and they make they have a turn radius that doesn't match up with any of all those dimensions because it's a game and it's got to be um, and it's got to be simplified and recognizable and and have some depth to it. Um, so, I mean, obviously, I, I have yet to play it. I really want to sit down and play it. I've, I've pushed planes around and looked at the rules a little bit, but I haven't truly played uh, with someone who knows how to how to walk through the game. So it'll be interesting for me to try that and see if see if my analytical brain can deal with a nonlinear range scale. So and on that topic, Pierce, y'all play in. So it's scale agnostic, right? Because y'all play in one in 600. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah okay. Which Pico yeah, so Armor we- makes amazing planes for. Yeah, we have uh, we play with uh, tumbling dice planes and Pico armor planes. We use a mix of both because not not either company has everything that we're looking for, of course. Um, so we kind of use both, and then also three D prints uh, generously provided by uh, Casey. Um, but uh, we kind of just fill you know fill the gaps with you know whatever we can find. Yeah, and one two eighty fifth will work just fine too, right? Yeah, but I wouldn't. Would you think going higher than that would be a little too much unless you had a bigger table? I think that'd be too much because then you're also getting into kind of the issues where things can get kind of close to each other um, in missile threat and you can like pass by and through each other. And I think as long as your aircraft is about the size of your base so that you kind of have a rough kind of barrier for your actual model, I think that's probably where you're good. When you're going to get started into like, oh, I'm going to use a, you know, a one, a one, 144 aircraft or something on the base. I feel like that might start getting a little bit too large. Yeah. Sorry, Doug. No big red missile threat. <laughs> no, yeah. I'm, that's my, 
yeah. No, I, 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 would, I would agree. Just and once again, not having played it, but <clears throat> seeing how things work, the the difference from one to three inches is <clears throat> is a lot. And so, yeah. as you get into the close fight, there's a need to not be overlapping and feeling like you're sitting on top of the other guys. Yeah, it's pretty common that when you merge your aircraft at one point, kind of end up kind of crossing right past each other if you if you do merge and that's one of those things it's like well when you do that and then it's like okay well i'm glad i have small planes because we've got three aircraft that are like this to each other and they can at least get past each other <laughs> well brett was asking us a good question on on the tabletop what does this look like uh in in numbers of airplanes and kind of how oh, yeah. the aging is because obviously if some of us have watched the videos or played it like you guys have and we can see how aircraft stage through they do part of their mission and leave never to return and mm-hmm. other aircraft are phased in at a later turn. Uh, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so um, I think that generally you can probably get away with, if you want to just get into it, like I think with four aircraft, you could actually have a pretty decent mission. Um, if there were like, you know, four multi-rolls or something or, you know, whatever the mission is, if it's just a, just a little bit of variety just to give you that kind of fun variety is different. Um, but with just a handful of aircraft, you can really play the whole game to its completion. Um, we've done larger games. Um where you end up with like one side having like eight, nine, or even 10 aircraft on the table at a time. Um, and that's usually when we do co-op versus the AI and everyone brings their little squadrons. Um, and that still doesn't get too clumsy because again, we're using smaller aircraft. Um, and generally everyone's working on a mission. So you kind of know where not to be. It's like, oh yeah, this guy's <laughs> flying here and he's going to go strike this and then leave. So I know I need to get away from him to give him his space so that yeah. he can go do that. Um, so it's kind of a, like a self-solving problem. But yeah, I'd say like, four aircraft on the downside and then probably up to like 12 on the higher end. Um, and then part of that too is uh, ground forces. Um, you, it, the game comes with little chits. If you wanted to use like a little chit for a radar or whatever. Um, I use a lot of GHQ miniatures um, for my stuff just because again, just more miniatures on the table. Helping the fact that we awarded you the guest grognard term by saying you even own GHQ miniatures, much less use them. Your, your grognard level is rising. <laughs> <laughs> Doug, do you have any idea how many T-55s I own <laughs> in GHQ scale? I don't know. How, I don't know. I don't know how it happened. But at one point I did a count last year and I had over 40 of them. And I don't know where they all came from. I don't need that many. But I've just through my collection of collecting GHQ stuff and, you know, heroic and row stuff. I've I ended up with all these guys. Pierce is my new BFF. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to go fish our little micro armor around. You guys can do everything. Micro great. Yo, I mean, oh, I love Cole, it, right? We're not talking about it, but, you know, Cold War Commander, Seven Days in the River Ryan, all that stuff. Uh, yeah. we, can, we can talk uh, about that later. Yes. Yeah, we can talk about that later. We're a huge Seven Days fan, and I've got Cold War Commander over there. I was uh, I actually pulled it out of the bin I was, as I was reorganizing kind of my game area. I got some more shelves, so everything's yeah. not crammed into the same shelf unit. I'm like, oh, yeah, I did buy this a couple months ago. I should actually read it and play it. Mm-hmm. So, Fun game. Easy, your fault. <laughs> <laughs> no, but yeah, so I've, again, low-end foracraft, and then there's really a higher limit. And then because you do the whole flight plan thing and things come and go, I mean, you're not having everything on the table the whole game. And some aircraft right. have a really short duration. They can only be on for like three turns and they're out. So when you're making your flight plan and you're kind of thinking about what you want to do, but as you're getting into the game, it's like, yeah, those short-term aircraft, they're going to come on fast, low, do their business and then leave. Cause they're usually like, you're going to be your ground attackers or something. Yeah. So let's um, talk about the flight plan yeah. and how that works. Cause um, let me be honest as a, as a former aviator, that part gave me a chubby. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that people it's cool. actually have to plan how their, yeah. how their assets are going to phase in and do some real world planning. Um, sorry, Brett, it's not like, planning a building takedown or whatever you operators did all that cool stuff <laughs> almost as cool um but 
but let's talk about that because you don't just literally push everything on the board at once and you have to kind of pre-script it and you have to, like you said, know how long some assets will be on the board, when they're going to leave, how much protection they might need. Mm-hmm. So if you have two waves, maybe a seed wave and an air to ground, you know, ground attack wave, okay, how long can my cap stay on the board? Is it going to yep. be there the whole time? Do uh, they need to cycle in and out? Do any multiple cap aircraft so I can have those to leave and then new ones come on? Yep, yeah, the whole thing. So basically what you do is that before you start the game, you, um, you know, I, we always just use like little note cards and we just say like turn one, here's what's coming on. Turn two, here's what's coming on. Turn three, here's what's coming on. And as things come on, and there's the book. I can see you've got it over there. Um, <laughs> Casey has a hard copy too. Yeah, yeah. very nice. Um, a real, a, <laughs> an actual real, real hard copy too, and not my binder full of leaf paper. Um, but yeah, the uh, so you got to kind of say when things come and when things go too. So um, our things can stay until for their you know entire duration. Um, and when things leave the table, um, anything that's currently tracking it, like a missile or something, it's kind of a last swing at it. Um, to kind of represent being chased off. But then after that, it's gone. Um, so it's pretty easy cleanup. It's not like, oh, I got to track what happens here and there. Um, they come on, they do their mission, then they leave. Um, and it's it's a fun game to play as the, play as the defender because when you're kind of like defending airspace, you got to figure out like, okay, what's he going to do? What do I have on the ground? Where do I want to put this stuff? Um, and then how am I going to use my aircraft to kind of phase in and try and bounce him and like, you know, disrupt him or whatever he's doing because you don't see your opponent's flight plan and neither do right. you. So you can kind of, you can kind of end up in situations where like, there'll be a turn where like nothing starts on the table. And it's like, okay, well, someone's got to show up eventually, you know, like someone's got to <laughs> play the game. So you kind of end up waiting it out and seeing who shows up and when. Steve, um, did how did that work for you? Was that counterintuitive? Was it pretty straightforward? It was different, but it was super easy and super intuitive to figure it out because the planes also have, uh, I guess you'd equate it to like their fuel or their time on station or whatever, you know, so the planes have a certain, you know, this plane can stay on for three turns or whatever. Uh, Yeah, I thought it was I thought it was really cool. That aspect of pre-planning. The other thing is uh, once you make your plan, the plan doesn't change. Right. Mm -hmm. So like if you say like your, you know, you have an element that's coming on and it's staying for three turns and then it's out. Like, it doesn't matter. Like that's the plan. You know, you're mm-hmm. not just right. like willy nilly, just doing whatever you want on the board. You know, I thought that was, I thought that was actually the planning stage. Like you said, was a really cool dynamic to it. And it really made you kind of think through your strategy before you got on the board. And even in a simple dogfight mission, it kind of did as well because like Pierce was saying, you might the, in the rules and we haven't got to yet, there is a minimal movement for every plane like most most games have. But if you could kind of plan it like, oh, he, I'm going to think he's going to put his planes on. I'm going to let them make their minimal move maybe to get to a different spot on the board. Maybe I'll hold my guys guys back for a turn or two before I even deploy. So it's a it's a really cool like game before the game kind of. Right. I, you know, I, I think I like in games that have a, a pre-planned reinforcements or phasing or things like that so much more than the standard GW roll a five up on turn three and roll a four up on turn four, you know, the, where there's mm-hmm. so much randomization. I, I like when people have some agency in it and then all of a sudden you realize you might have totally misjudged, you know, how you, what your opponent's plan is. Uh, we were playing AI earlier in the week and we were talking about that because um, some of the scenarios just have such a standard GW frustrating um, uh, reinforcements and, and reserves way that you're like, I, 
you can lose the game because just reinforcements don't show up on the table and your half your forces get get t- tabled or whatever. You know, I think that may be something we steal for Adepticon and uh, and try to do in the Aeronautica event is at least do something with like the large trench battle that we did with instead of putting everybody on the board, have people write a plan and build their their by turn phased uh, phased reinforcements just to do something different. Yeah, I'm, I'm tired of rolling and losing because I rolled wrong. <laughs> Thanks, GW. <laughs> yeah, the flight plan's a lot of fun because you get stuff too where people it really, it really makes you think through the whole thing because like okay, my plane's going to move this far each turn. Yeah. And then the missile has a speed because missiles have a speed in this game. So it's like okay, I need to take out the ground radar so I can deploy my attackers really close to his, to you know targets so they can take them out and then leave. But if my seed plane moves 12 inches a turn and my missile moves 9 inches a turn, it's going to be four turns before my missile actually hits the target. And do I want to shoot one or do I want to shoot two in case the first one, you know, like, so you sit yeah. there and you, like, work out this whole thing in your head to be like, okay, I think I need to do this. And turn five was when my attackers show up. And we had a game, um, I think, like a year ago at this point, where someone played and it was very, and it was this exact same scenario, but they didn't factor in the missile travel time. So their plane came in, they shot, and then their ground attackers came in. And then the ground attackers were sitting there doing circles, uh, waiting for the missiles to actually hit their targets and see what happened before they decided where they were going to go. And it was it was it was really funny. Meanwhile, of course, I've got my cap that is coming in like, oh, kill him now. (laughs) Like he he can't move closer. Just go get him. Um, And it was it it totally changed the game from what they expected just because you didn't you made one little mistake like that. And that could be frustrating in some in some systems. But in this one, it's just like, no, like. All the numbers were there. I knew what I needed to do, and I just biffed on this one detail of it. So, <laughs> excellent. Well, so let's talk through some of the mechanics. Uh, sure, Steve, you were talking through kind of the minimum move. Uh, give us your perspective, Steve, on on the movement and how it's different than what we normally see, either in games like Blood Red Skies or you know Check Your Six, any one of these other aerial games that we've played. Uh, I liked it because the way it works is basically your plane has sort of, uh, I guess I would describe it kind of as a speed band that it can work through, and it. The very first move of the turn is that move of whatever your speed setting is on your airplane. So very much kind of the way that Snapship's tactics, which we talked about in the last episode, works. That the first thing you have to do, and in that game, the same as Missile Threat, it's kind of accounting for that like inertial movement that your plane just has because it's moving, right? So again, I thought it was really intuitive. Uh, and then your other speeds and how that speed adjust, how that speed adjust then depends on your other maneuvers that you do throughout the rest of your turn. Right. Uh, yeah, I just I thought it was super easy, super intuitive, uh, and I believe all those happen simultaneously. Is that mm-hmm. correct? So all the planes yep. kind of have. Uh, it's not really an initiation order. That first movement of planes all kind of happens simultaneously. Right. So you get. Uh, like the battle always seems to kind of be flowing through the battle. And also when you talk about playing with, uh, larger forces where you're playing with, you know, say 12 planes or whatever, and you're playing with a group of people, it's just a straight move ahead. So as far as gameplay goes, anybody can grab your plane, see the speed it's set and just move it that many inches ahead, you know? So it's a move that keeps the flow of the game going. And from a gameplay and a speed of gameplay, uh, mechanic it works really well for aiding that also and so the only measuring tools you need are what do you need a ruler and what else 
A ruler and a protractor. Yes. Um, I because love that you use a protractor. <laughs> yeah. So so go go raid your daughter's uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, little little, yeah. her little matchbox. No. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. No. Who steal her protractor? <laughs> you know, be a bad dad. Yeah. Because uh, you use that for your turning degrees. Yep. So, um, so, um, aircraft as they move will move across the outside of a protractor. And this is where it's important. You can use any kind of protractor as long as everyone uses the same size of protractor because <laughs> so a degree on a small protractor, protractor is not the same. And you'll get planes making real impossible turns when yours aren't. And it's like, oh, how is, that, how, how is it happening? Um, so as long as they have a standardized size and you can agree on whatever that is, really. Um, just, you know, whatever arbitrary you protractor you use. It's a six inch protractor. There you go. <laughs> hey, hey, my wife's not listening. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, Sorry, Steve. Use Mom. one of those. Yep. <laughs> Move along to the outside. And that's kind of your like turn band. And um, certain aircraft will have certain generally the more generally the more agile ones will have bigger bands because as you turn around the protractor, you lose speed. Right. Um, so if you're a fighter um, or uh, the, the aircraft will have um, special keywords attached to them, like uh, powerful or uh, um, fast dive or fast climb, things like that. They kind of change how it plays in a little bit in the rules. So like a really powerful aircraft that's like a fighter can move a lot of degrees without losing a lot of speed. Right. Um, so it can really do some maneuvers around a protractor that, let's say, a, a, you know, IL-28 could not. Um, right. do anything well, close I, to that. They talk about that in the YouTube video because I think they used the mm-hmm. F4 Phantom in the in the YouTube mm-hmm. video. I think so. It being powerful and so it yep. you know, gets to basically arc around further. Uh, yeah, it can ignore the first speed loss so it can right. just exactly. it, it, so it just move. It just doesn't even care about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I think there's some cool things there. So you, you don't necessarily get to um, modify your turn radius, but at least you're modifying the rate and the energy loss. So yep. it gives you some tactical, uh, some tactical trade-offs there. So yeah. and and once it, again, as long as everyone's on the same, the same band or yeah. the same, and I like how Chris said, it kept it realistic too. Like, you know, not every plane can make that like hard, right. Or keep doing it and stuff like that. So you still have that realism there, even if it's slightly abstracted. Right. Yeah. And it's interesting how it kind of, you can combine it and this is, and it, it kind of gets into complex maneuvers because you can combine some things with other things. Like you can do a dive and a turn right? and that counts as one action if you just combine them. So you can lose speed doing a turn, but you're in a dive. So you gain it back. So you're, so you're at a wash and that's kind of where the actual turn fight kind of stuff comes in. And um, really what I find is aircraft only get shot down when they lose all their energy, which seems really right. appropriate. Like when they're out of options, they can't they can't move anymore. They're on the deck. They're slow. Then they then they're toast, yeah. um, which yeah. is seems fair to me. I mean, <laughs> yeah. no, that's that's good. Yeah. Well, Casey, how much have you had a chance to play the game? So I've played with myself, the planes. Whoa. Uh, <laughs> so Are you sure we talk about that? I mean, night shifts. We don't need to know. Yeah. <laughs> so as typical for me, I painted up about 40 planes and really only played once. But uh, nice. other people, but I painted up the whole uh, 73, the Egyptians and the Israelis. Right. Yeah. And I played it I quite a that, bit. That and works. I had a fun just, and I didn't even use the solo rules. I, you know, I just played like, you know, just switching table slides. Yeah. And I really liked it. And it's something which I'm sure we're going to go in in a second. And the biggest point of contention, it seems like, with aerial games is altitude. Right. And that was something I thought I was going to struggle to wrap my head around. But once it was on the table, I liked how it was done. Yeah, I didn't let's need the 37 magnets or the dude with the fishing pole yeah. with the plane on top. Well, I, I was as I was reorganizing my you know uh, war game rack there, I pulled out uh, Birds of Prey with all of their little stackable mm-hmm. counters that go underneath it. And they just, oh, my head hurt. 
So let's talk about how altitude is handled. Pierce. Got it. it it's a dice. It's a dice that goes on the base. Okay, yeah. next topic. There you go. So. Done. Yeah, okay, topic. we're done. Okay. Next topic. No. Uh, it's, it's one of the things that's intuitive. Now, I, I will say – There's a, there's a little bit more to it, but yeah. But yeah. Well, Steve and I have talked about it, that, that it's one that one of the toughest things is to be able to look at it at a aircraft and analyze what you need to do with it. And I think – while I love the models for Aeronautic Imperialis, the bases are the worst because of those tiny little holes that you have to read your airspeed and out, or your speed and your altitude through. You're like, what altitude is he at again? <laughs> so having a die sitting on the on the base, nice and easy and intuitive, and you can put a big die there if you're like yep. me and you're blind and you need to see large pips. Yeah. Um, so the so the speed and the altitude both go as dice. Yep. Um, and you just choose to, you know, choose two different color dice and you can just tell from across the table yeah. what they're doing. And Litco makes some awesome bases. If they're using yep. one, two eighty five or one, six hundred that have the, you know, the bases Stop for the dice for too. those guys. They, they, they make the best money stuff money. for it. <laughs> they do. Honestly, it's perfect. They have yeah. little tiny dice trays that hold two dice and they fit around the flight peg and they yep. flip directly into the little clear base. I, I, I and, say this so many times and I truly believe it. They are the gold standard for most things acrylic out there. There's a few people on Etsy yeah. that do more um, artisanal <laughs> acrylic if you want some of that. But if you want bases, if you want bases that have dice trays, if you want bases with multi-size flight stands, whatever, Litco has it. Uh, whether you can find it on the site because you got to go 17 pages down sometimes. Um, but it... Litco makes some great stuff. I, I love their. I actually got a box from them today. Uh, no. That's kind of funny. It's sitting on my kitchen counter. This <laughs> podcast is not sponsored by Litco. <laughs> but it could be. be. If they want it. Yeah. Hey, contact me. No, not. <laughs> but yeah, I really did like, like I said, the altitude. I do like sometimes you see the immersion on the table. Sometimes the planes are higher. And that's what I like Blood Red Skies does with the disadvantage. You know, you kind of have an idea of what's going on. But once it is on the table and the dice, like, after like 30 seconds, I was fine with it. Like, you know, I was in the mm -hmm. mood. It was good. Well, well, Steve and I have talked about it, that there's there's a point to immersion if it works well. And if you have, you know, colored slots that go into the bases or whatever that that really make a physical difference on the table. But that's always so clunky. And, you know, how do you pick up your airplane and change out altitudes and do all that? Where, to be honest, putting a die on the bases is, is the easiest, most intuitive way. It just may not have the immersion factor of airplanes at different altitudes i would say that that was my probably my biggest complaint about the game is that there's not a it didn't physical have extendable stands you want, you want extendable stands no the the physical representation for me of altitude is just much more intuitive to seeing what's going on where when i'm kind of like planning my maneuver and i'm you know you have kind of a god's eye view of the board right so you have very good, uh, very good, I don't know, for lack of a better term, like tabletop situational awareness of the X yeah. and Y axis, right? It's very easy because you have that God's eye view. And just for me, it's hard for me to remember to look at the die on my plane, look at the die on the other guy's plane. So I got in a lot of situations was like, oh, shit, I forgot I was looking at his altitude. Now, part of that also is being trained by Blood Red Skies, where you have that advantage that's stand where it's like you, down, yeah. middle, up, right? Mm -hmm. And I know that's not in Blood Red Skies. It's not representing altitude, but just that very, very distinct 
visual representation of the different levels, I think would be would be a really well I, really I, nice. I think game we changer. can we can draw on your experience and say from watching you in DCS that altimeter that is actually an altimeter. <laughs> you, you don't reference that either, so you know that's fine. Why, why would you have a problem with altitude? I don't see this this being something that's important. Sorry. Is as it, long as it's not at zero, it's fine. <laughs> exactly. If it's positive, it's good. If it goes around the other way, it's bad. Is it Checker 6 that has the colored bands like on a rod? Is that Checker 6 that does that? Which one does I that? That, was that might be Checker 6. I remember looking at bases for Checker 6, and I seem to remember there being colored rods. But I Yeah, I know they I, do it covered. Yeah, that might be a, a false memory. I've do it like, where it kind of made sense. But in the end, like I said, I'm fine with it. If that's because between altitude and then BVR engagements, those are always my two hangups. And after playing it, like, it flows. It works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Steve and I have talked about it. I think there's a – especially when you have games at a larger scale or larger scale miniatures, there's this fine line between needing to stack people higher so they don't run over each other and needing to stack people higher so there's a visual depiction of altitude. Because, like, with Snapship Tactics, no altitude. It's a space combat game, but we still kept running into each other until we stacked at different, different heights uh, on the bases. And I feel like you could always like if you if you were hung up on it that much, then there's ways you could do it. You could get different yeah. acrylic rods and you know however oh, you yeah. wanted to do it. Like yeah. it's not like a complete hang up in the game. You can work past it. Yeah, right. as long as you also just keep in mind that you need that the dice does have to be there to show you what, what its you know number is. Um, you could use whatever kind of visual aid if you wanted to come in there and pull the plane off the top if it's magnetized, put another rod in there, drop it, and be like, okay, now he's higher. Like if you wanted to do that, you could absolutely do that. Um, I think, and aircraft I think we know that's the point where Brett would knock over several aircraft. Right. <laughs> right. Out. For yeah, me, it's one Brett, of those things where it's easier to twist a dice than it is to like yeah. start like putting new like the stands. I have, have proven that we can be the clumsiest people when it comes <laughs> to that. I, especially with things that are magnetized. I still remember the first time we played uh, all of our MIG alley stuff had our beautiful magnetized bases for our MIGs and for everything. And as soon as the first tape went out there, the, the magnetic tip on the tape <laughs> caught the first airplane and sucked it across the board. So, yeah. <laughs> no but alcohol was involved, right? No, no, that was. And we, we stand there with a, with a tape major with an airplane stuck on the end of it. We look at each other and go, maybe magnetization was not a good idea. <laughs> so we've learned our lesson there. All right. Uh, other mechanics you guys think we should anchor down on? You guys have obviously played. I haven't. I've just filtered through the book. Uh, what are some other things that are key to how missile threat is different mechanically than than other games? I would say the one thing that I really liked about it, and kind of going back to what I say about every game, if I can't learn it in 30 minutes, don't even set it in front of me. Like I don't even want to. I, I don't want to hear the name of it. It was very, very much on the same learning curve of blood red skies where it's like, you kind of have that curve of, okay, I learned the basic movement, right? So you get the basic movement down. And if you want to just play the game with the basic movement, you just play the game with the basic movement. But then as you get good at that, the planes have their own kind of special traits, right? And then you kind of can add that layer. And then there's special, special maneuvers. So then you can kind of add that layer. So as far as the mechanics of the game, you could play it at its most very, very basic form where you're just using a ruler and a protractor and flying around and shooting some missiles. Definitely very playable. But as you get more comfortable with it and you start to add those layers and uh, add that depth on at each scalable part, it really starts to develop into a fun thing. And then you get into those special maneuvers, which obviously a lot of the game is uh, like BVR. You're firing missiles at stuff or 
you know, you're further away. But once you get to that merge, there's some really, really cool special maneuvers you can do that then give you a flair of a, a close in dogfight without, like you said, charts and the minutia of it. And so, so just the movement of the game, very, very easy and intuitive to pick up and the turn sequence and all that very, very easy and accessible to play. Yeah. And speaking of that, Pierce, can you touch on real quick, just how missiles work? And like BVR, how it works in the game. Oh yeah, sure. So um, missiles have kind of a so there's multiple different kinds of missiles, and they all have their different kind of um, secret warheads, um, and those will all behave differently. Um, there's, for example, home on jam, IR, um, semi-active. Um, uh, it goes through um, ARH. There's like a, there's like a couple different methods that the missile will use, and then m- missiles also have their own speed um, as well as their own turning rate. Um, those are all kind of like the things you put on your plane have their own little plane profile almost where it shows like, okay, this is, this is how fast it comes off the rail and this is its degrees for tracking. And then this is kind of how it tracks. Um, so once you shoot a missile, you have to track it on the table. Um, and unless it's immediately going to be a, you know, straight kind of shot impact within the, you know, missiles minimum range and you just immediately hit them and then you roll and, th- and then you go to that chart and you kind of figure out, okay, did I hit them? Did I miss? So on and so forth. Um, otherwise missiles will track across the table um, and they'll slowly lose speed. Um, some missiles are faster and some missiles um, have a, a longer range where they can travel. So there's a couple different mechanics and you just have to kind of figure out what you're working with. And obviously you don't use eight different kinds of missiles in one game. You probably are, shooting two or three different kinds at most. Um, and so it's not too, so it's not too cumbersome to figure out what all of your stuff's equipped with. And the book comes with the back of the book or the PDF comes with sheets of the missiles too, doesn't it? The tokens yes. you can just print it yep. out. If you, you yep. can use a physical one or like printed one or yep. just print that out and cut it out and lay it on the board. Yep. I use little physical ones from our favorite company, Litco, um, but you <laughs> don't have to. Um, you can just use the little tiny pieces of paper that I'll say like, R60M, and then you just put them on the table and you just move the R60M around, and there am, you go. I am scarred for life with those Litco missiles because playing full thrust, those are what guys use for their missile barrages. And so, literally, my day has been ruined by little tiny Litco missiles as they place 12 of them on the board and vaporize um, my super dreadnought or whatever. One mechanic I haven't heard brought up, and I just want to bring up is a pilot skill, is actually right. a thing, too. Um, pilots will have different skills, and um, Uh, Steve was talking about kind of advanced abilities that pilots can do. And those are actually locked out of um, green pilots. Like people that aren't actually skilled can't actually do them. So when you get into a dogfight between, let's say, unskilled pilots and unskilled pilots, there is that kind of natural thing where it's like your skilled pilot's playing simple missile threat. He's moving around the protractor. He's going up and down and doing kind of broad maneuvers. Your skilled pilot can use those kind of maneuvers and he can roll a check against his skill to see if he passes. And if he passes, he can whip around the table and do all sorts of crazy shit, um, which your, you know, unskilled guy is completely unable to answer for. So you kind of have to figure out how you want to fight with that kind of thing. Well, and that's one of the things that Steve and, and Brett, you and I have talked about a lot of times with ace skills and how it's funny that in Blood Rants, guys, you know, ace traits are compartmentalized to only the highest quality of pilots up here. Yet some of the things they talk about are like basic tactics that a, a, someone who had flown 100 hours or so in the airplane would know how to do. And so that's what I liked about 
uh, looking through missile threat is it, it didn't have the the all the haves no. and then the ten thousand have nots no. <laughs> underneath them. It had basically people that were skilled and people that weren't, and so it yep. gave you an ability to to break people into someone that was going to play in a very predictable, in a sense, manner, uh, and someone that could do other things with, with skills mm-hmm. and traits. Yeah, really. Like I said, I think the mechanics are really solid in it. And uh, also, Pierce, I brought up earlier, kind of talking about the other stuff that he puts out for the game, the uh, mercenary campaign that y'all right. did. Yeah, so we actually um, – I, I think this is actually really cool. And uh, I've, I've really been into the idea of co-op war <laughs> games lately because I think they're really they're really neat. Um, but the idea that like, okay, you get uh, you get you and your best friends and you can all basically start a mercenary company in the game's mechanics where you get a budget – um, and it can be in dollars or rubles or whatever you want it to be in. Um, and you get your planes and your pilots and you have to, every mission you have to pay your pilots and you have to buy fuel for your planes and you got to replace the missiles you shot or the bombs you dropped. Um, and you got to roll to generate your missions. So if it's like, okay, um, what are the missions available to us and how much do we want to spend on them and how much are we going to commit to them? And what kind of, what pilots do we have available? So it kind of adds this whole element of you don't want your guys. You really are like this guy's got to get back okay, and he's got to get back with his plane, and he's got to back got back with as many missiles on his wings as he can because I cannot afford more. Like, right. Right. and if I use them, I got to make sure I use them for a good reason. Like, <laughs> it almost sounds like, like Ace just, Combat on the table. <laughs> well, right? So, yeah, so, you're not going to be slinging off eight hundred missiles. Ace Combat is what you youngins played. <laughs> uh, I'm going to throw one out there because as soon as we were talking about some stuff uh, early on, uh, I was like, I got to go back and I got to look on Wikipedia and figure out what I remember playing. Uh, I am so old that I remember playing Strike Commander. Nice. I don't know if anyone yeah. remembers that. Yeah, as a mercenary pilot video game on the PC, uh, where you had the same things. You had to, you know, yeah. what did that you bring back? That was a cool game. It was, and and I loved playing that, like many other stupid flight simulator <laughs> games, like like Jane's ATF and U.S. Navy and all those. Oh, but, yes. but it was cool. So, yeah, uh, you know, I, I mean, it's I, fun. I think you guys are going to sucker me into playing uh, Missile Threat, not for any tactical reason but just to play a mercenary campaign so uh, that's the it's highest, a lot of fun uh, compliment a naval aviator can give by the way for a tabletop game <laughs> <laughs> forget tactics we don't care about tactics. throw that out throw that out throw that out and it's funny because you get to the point where like more skilled pilots need more pay and yeah, if it's like, yeah. am I using this guy? Can I fire him and find someone worse? <laughs> exactly. Like, do I need this guy to fly this plane? All he does is drop dumb bombs. Steve. Yeah, Steve yeah. only does <laughs> fly caps and get shot yeah. down. Can we get someone else? Our yeah. favorite. Can we, hold on, Time out. Yeah. This actually, it's funny you just brought that up <laughs> because I have my mercenary list right here. Oh, there you go. And just for fun, I had enough money for four pilots and I named them Steve, Brett, Doug, and Casey. And... <laughs> And the worst was probably Doug. That guy's a moron. I mean, the stats don't lie, Doug. I mean, they're right there, man. (laughs) Hey, I have pilot skill. I'm not even a damn pilot. I'm a naval flight. I can't help it. But the one thing about the campaign that was super cool, and I'm glad you said that, case, because I was like, man, this is like ace combat, right? Because you can buy basically any plane. Yeah. Right? Uh, So you can have a totally mixed force and, you know, uh, the other thing that was really cool about it is we talked about that kind of planning element to the game before the game even starts, right? When you're doing the mercenary campaign, 
I was like just making my list and I was like, oh, I bought a bunch of OV10s because they were cheap. And then I bought an F4 Phantom and I was like, oh, I bought four planes. But then I was like, I can't really do anything with those four planes. <laughs> yeah. But then like, uh, you know, uh, somebody, one of the guys had an AWACS in their force. So we kind of planned to deploy that out. And somebody had a helicopter that they could do like a search and rescue mission if a pilot got shot down. So that pre-planning stage, uh, when you do that kind of co-op mercenary thing against the AI, it was super, super cool. Cause you're trying to plan your force and you're trying to work that into making sure your planes get back. Yeah. It was, it was super cool. Yeah. I have my list, man. I can't wait to play it again. <laughs> I think probably a really fun aspect of that too, that does tie into the whole mercenary aspect. Well, is it's like, all right, so we're all working on like, you know, this, you know, co-op mission, but it's like, you're going to protect my AWACS. Right. And it's like, yeah, of course. And it's like, and so, and so the first game I played the other player who was running his mercenary fighter planes and I had my AWACS that I spent an awful lot of money on. Um, uh, dipped to go chase someone down <laughs> and then a bunch of interceptors showed up and they started targeting the largest plane that they could see which was the AWACS and they were started off across the table thankfully but it was like hey you need to come back here because I'm in shit and you're the only reason you're here is to guard this fucking plane exactly. <laughs> and I like it too from like the hobby standpoint doing the mercenary campaign you're not stuck yeah. to your historical I don't know if y'all remember an old cartoon called like a, what was it like ring fighters or something it was a jet cartoon, and the toys they made were like jets that you put on a ring. I promise I'm not. I don't recall that. I will find pictures. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I will don't prove myself. <laughs> oh, yeah. so, you know, you can Is it on Wikipedia? It will be. I'll find it. Don't worry. So I don't believe you. I don't know. But yeah, so, you get so much just for that one PDF and then all the extras. And also what I've found is really cool is the author is pretty active. He has his own Discord. Yeah. You can message him on Facebook. He's pretty active on uh, the Aerial War Games Facebook, so he's always there to mm -hmm. answer questions, too. Yeah. Um, I actually had a conversation with him about a year ago um, about another one of his games, Cornered Wolf. Um, but, uh, yeah, and it was actually a lot of fun because he was like, hey, like, I got some questions about your games, and I'll be honest, that wasn't one of his best games, to be blunt. <laughs> um, and so we were kind of talking to him. It's like, hey, we, like, really like this one that you made, but this one's, like, not so great. So, like, let's talk about, like, you know, what's, you know, going on and stuff like that. And it was actually really cool that he actually got onto a call with us on Discord. And we're just like, yeah, let's talk about it. It's like, what? <laughs> Why? Just us? It's like. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. no, Casey, I will not talk to you about Fulcrum Leader. <laughs> if, you, if you have questions, you're screwed. Read the FAQ. <laughs> yeah, wait six months for release. So Exactly. He makes a World War II rule set as well, right? The Lacquered Coffins? Lacquered Coffins, yep. Does it have the same mechanics for the most part? Have you played it? Yeah, I've played, uh, I played uh, a fair amount of both. I've played more Missile Threat than Lacquered Coffins. Um, Lacquered Coffins is good. Um, it's simpler, um, which kind of, been a, it's kind of makes sense for the eras different. You know, you're not worried about if you've got a semi-active missile. You're worried about if you've got a 30 millimeter cannon or, you know, 7.7 cannon or whatever. But um, it's a... Uh, it's similar. It's simpler. Um, it's just as fun. I would suggest it that if you like missile threat and want to collect a bunch of tiny little spitfires or zeros or whatever, then lacquered coffins is a great kind of shift over. Or, uh, or alternative, if you like World War II and you want to go into missiles, well, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. It kind of goes both ways. <laughs> <laughs> Brett, I know you had a couple questions uh, about, uh, about stuff. Well, I was just curious what Pierce's favorite uh, era or like theater might be, or if he's got a favorite plane at this point. Uh, I played a lot of DCS, um, um, as I think probably most of us have. Um, and he still sucks. <laughs> so, so 
I really liked um I really liked the MiG twenty one. I thought it was a really cool plane. Hey, hey so I'm gonna I'll keep that keep that book up. Um, so I really liked the MiG twenty one, and then I played DCS and I flew it a bunch. And I said, you know what, this plane's actually kind of a heap of shit. Um, <laughs> it looks great. You need to have skills, Twitter. Right. So, so, so Steve, I'll tell you the best thing I ever did in the MiG twenty one is I restarted the engine in a dive after I stalled it. That was my pinnacle. Child, I slammed that flight. button. I, I that slammed that flight. button on the side of the cockpit over and over again until every the engine spooled up again, and I felt like a god. I I was done flying the MiG-21 after that. I was like, I beat the game. I stalled the engine, and then I started it again. I'm in midair. I didn't crash and die. I'm done. I beat the game. So the MiG-29, to answer your question, uh, is got to be my favorite aircraft. Um, I really like Russian aviation. I think that their planes just look great. I'm not talking about skill or ability at all. They look great, um, which when you're making miniatures is what you're looking at. Um and uh, the MiG-29 to me has always been a standout aircraft for me. Yeah. And ERA, um, I'm pretty mercenary with ERA. I mean, I can find something that's that looks cool in any of them and paint them up and play them. And I'm not tied to any particular uh, kind of field. Korean War is really cool. I haven't had a chance to play it yet. Um, you can in um, Missile Threat. I just haven't had a chance to. Um, little sabers and stuff like that. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, for me, the, the funny part was you, you get in there and, like I said, it starts at Korean War and then it goes straight into my favorite stuff. It has Indo-Pak stuff. Yeah. And so it's got, yeah. it's got all the stuff for both Indo-Pak Wars and then Arab-Israeli Wars. And yep. so Iran-Iraq. There's, yeah, there's yep. all kind of cool early jet stuff that you can yep. do. And, and, you know, mid-war, like like uh, Iran-Iraq stuff and then mm-hmm. South African stuff. and Yes. You know, yeah. Really, really cool kind of. Um, I, I hate to call them niche conflicts because they aren't. For us in the U.S., they are niche conflicts. But for uh, the people for, that are there, they're not, right? Yeah. For for all the other gamers in the world who actually like playing regional conflicts, yeah, um, they're they're actually really cool things. And so that's that's why I liked flipping through the book was I could sit there and I go, oh wow, I'm not just getting the usual dump mm-hmm. from a U.S. game that is okay. Here's how you fight the Cold War, and here's maybe yeah. if you do some Falkland stuff. Fight Vietnam um, yeah. for the rest of for the rest yeah. of your life in this game. Yeah, no, really, exactly. Good. Yeah. Oh, here's Desert yeah. Storm again. Yeah, yeah, here's Desert Storm again. Yeah, you you guys like that, right? Here it is. Here's more of it. It's like, oh no, please stop. Anything else? And he has some awesome yeah. plays for Iran Iraq too, which you don't see that often. Well, just now, which right. six recently, but before that, you rarely saw that on a game. Yeah, and, and that's really that's cool. A great list from Tom Coop. Oh wait, no, I didn't get anything. From Tom Cooper. <laughs> Tom uh, Cooper he's locked me. <laughs> He doesn't talk to me anymore. Oh, well, sorry. Sorry, Tom. Go fuck So, Pierce, do you think with how accessible it is that it would be a good con game to show off? I think it would be a good con game as long as you're very conscious of what you're putting on the table for people. Um, I think that um, if you go into it and, like, here's your F-35s and your SU-57s and all this stuff like that, it's going to be, like, too much because those are going to have a lot of special rules. The missiles are going to have a lot of special rules. The aircraft are going to be involved. There's going to be a lot of different sensors and radar nonsense and jamming. There's going to be a whole cloud of stuff that's all related to these aircraft. But I think if you – I mean, I I just said it, but, like, Vietnam or, you know, Indo-Pak or kind of any of those – any of those – I want to say, like – probably like 80s, 70s, kind of that era, the aircraft are not going to have such complex systems mechanically that the game has to like account for it. So they're going to be a little bit simpler to fly and a little bit easier to learn. And if you gave everyone like, here's a pair of F4s, you know, here's a pair of MiG-21 PFs, you know, here's a, here's a pair of these aircraft. Um, They're going to be identically loaded out. And so you've only got to learn very few rules that are attached to those aircraft and really only worry about that. I think it could be a really good con game. 
So, and I've always thought about the idea. Sorry, just to finish yeah. the thought. Because of the flight plan system, you can almost have like a missile threat grinder, kind of like how, how there's like a battle tech grinder. Uh, there you, you go, Doug. People, there you go. No, I was yeah. going to say it would it lends itself yeah. really well to the same way as we do the furball. For the same yep. reasons as the furball works really good. You could have 10 people each with two planes and the game is not going to bog down because of the way nope. that initial movement works. And because it's scalable, you could do the first couple turns of the missile threat furball as, okay, nobody has missiles yet. And then you yep. fly over a little token and you get a heat seeking missile or you fly yep. over a little token and you get, you know, so it's very scalable, much the same way as blood red skies. It, uh, very like I would, I would classify it like blood red Squi- skies as a squadron level game where you're controlling a squadron of aircraft, not more like check your six where you, you might be controlling one or two or wings mm-hmm. of glory where you're controlling, you know, like one or two aircraft with your cards. Uh, but yeah, to do a, a furball as a convention game or even set up like a cool scenario because the, the ground attack rules are really good in it. So you could have a really and because it's uh, a lot of your ground attack is at longer ranges than you would find in Blood Red Skies. You could do some really, really cool three dimensional ground targets and you're not yep. flying right over them and sitting on top of right. them. Right. You could you could you could do a really, really cool scenario based uh, con game as well, where everybody gets one or two planes. Yeah, I, I think so, it has a so lot. So what of you're saying, Steve, is that you're going to run that at fall in. You're going to run a uh, a man missile I, threat furball. Dude, <laughs> I think I'm all in. I'm going to set up a you know Iron Eagle. Scenario. You got to pull the shirt up. Where you have to, uh, (laughs) you got to go in. You got to land. Casey already said he's going to dress like the uh, (laughs) Egyptian Egyptian general or whatever nation. Excellent, excellent. Yeah. Yeah. So, so while we're talking about the shirt, I don't think we covered this. So, oh, this is bad. You, you Don't embarrassed yourself. With, no, we got to tell the story because we because you got the shirt. So you showed up wearing your chappy shirt. Uh, at, we went out to lunch there at Twisted Lords, and I think you had forgotten that Oklahoma City is an Air Force town, and that where we are, we are literally adjacent to Tinker Air Force Base at Twisted Lords. So we go out to the you know, little Hawaiian place to go get some katsu chicken and rice and whatever, and. You roll up to the counter and what? There's four Air Force oh, dudes yeah. in flight suits standing there. Oh yeah, yeah. So I have my chappy shirt on. Chappy shirt. Yeah, the guy looks at me. He's like, "It's an underrated movie." <laughs> like you know. It, <laughs> yeah, I'm saying there's the Marine going, "Fuck you guys and Iron Eagle." I don't. What you made five of them? Jeez, come on. We only made two Top Guns. Used to be one. Now it's two. Yeah, that was something. Yeah, so, that was yeah. good. That was good. Yeah. So yeah, that's what I, I'm hoping we get to roll some dice for uh, missile threat at Fallen. <laughs> I'm ready. Yeah. You guys set it up. I'm Let's calling. I'm calling the F-16. Yeah. You guys can all. You guys can all fly Kafirs. I'm. I'm taking the F-16. <laughs> I'll be out there in my uh, my Indian Air Force Nat. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Guns only. <laughs> yep. Yep. Well, cool. All right. Well, anything else we really want to cover about the game itself? We talked about, you know, the mercenary campaigns. We talked about, you know, some of the the ways to expand the game uh, and, and different modes of play, solo and uh, and cooperative. Uh, anything else in the in the basic construct construct of the game you want to talk about? Um, I, th- I think that the main point is that if you go into it not expecting a super granular 
kind of experience, then you're going to get the most out of it. Um, if you go into it and you really are just like extremely like I, I, I know how these planes work because I designed them or something, you know, like, all right, you know, worked on them for 20 years and you go into it with that kind of mindset. There's going to be like a simulation. It's not. It's yeah, really not. Right. Um, it does not even get close to that. And I think that's well, its strength that it yeah, doesn't. I think, I think most of yeah. us don't want to play a simulation. And and the problem is for years, people played simulations on the board because mm-hmm. we didn't have computer simulations yeah. that were any good. And now our computer simulations are so darn good. I have to go read the NATOPS manual before I take off in the F-15 yeah. and DCS. <laughs> and I don't want to do that again. I'm good. Thanks, man. I don't need yeah. to read that manual. Um, so... I, I think what we're seeing is a lot of the games, people are simplifying, people are condensing, people are modeling it to where it feels like aviation, but mm-hmm. it doesn't – you don't have to simulate aviation. You don't it feels like the, it. It looks games. like it, but you're not actually doing all the hard work. Right. It just looks right. like it, and that's enough. And it's important yeah. too. Like we don't have – we're not retired. We don't have eight hours to try to play you know, nope. one engagement. Like if I can get something done in an hour and a half, two hours, that's awesome. Well, yeah, I think, I think Steve, we played two games in like four hours. Sorry, man, no, we played two games in. I mean, and I was learning, right? So it wasn't yeah. like we were really playing; we were kind of walking through stuff. But I mean, we played two full games in probably like three hours, four hours tops. That's, that's, I think it was, it was four hours tops, and that was a plenty of bullshitting in the middle. Oh yeah, yeah. it was awesome. <laughs> yeah, it was. That it never happens for us. Yeah, I know. Yeah, right. Yeah. I, I would say for our audience that's listening to this. If you are playing Blood Red Skies and you're kind of like, man, I really want to do something with missiles. I really want to kind of go into that next, uh, you know, next era. Because I kind of get like that, too, where I love World War II aircraft. But every once in a while, I'm like, F-16. You know, I just like want to do something like different. Right. If you play Blood Red Skies, this is a perfect uh perfect jumping off point to get into uh into that missile uh kind of modern era of of dog fighting it really really is cool Duff. thanks guys we've been talking okay go ahead pierce no it's cheap yeah. i was gonna say it's yeah. cheap it's <laughs> cheap that's why i you know i war game vault is my second nemesis noble knight games is my first nemesis those yep, guys same they can, yep they can go fuck themselves yeah they have <laughs> so much of my money and yeah, have so i have no reason for it a ton of money again i got some really cool stuff i got it i i got it cheap but i bought like all 10 of them so uh in the end it wasn't cheap but um the good thing is it's out there on war game vault it's cheap it's like a lot of rule sets you buy out there you can try it um and if you like the pdf and want to buy a hard copy you can get the hard copy printed and shipped to you uh, so uh, I think it's it's a perfect thing for people to go try, see if they like it, see if they like how the game plays. Um, the, the thing that I'll say is for a lot of people that get hung up on miniature scales, use what you have. Figure out what you got. And, and even if we talked about one, two hundredth, maybe too big uh, for some of the, the merges and things, but play with what you got and then see if you like the rules and then fall off the wagon like the rest of us and <laughs> go, buy, go buy a bunch more miniatures or get your buddies to 3d print them um but so it's it's very accessible in that way so i, th- I think mm-hmm. you're right there so that's that's one of the good things about it all right well we've been running our uh, mouse for a little over an hour here probably boring to tears all of our world war ii grognards are like well they just talk about how many cylinders there are in a spitfire mark 25 um yeah so no no we won't sorry we're talking jets um but uh but that's the thing thanks pierce i appreciate you coming on 
um, and and taking time to educate me about uh, Mr. Threat. I know you've taken the time to break Steve in and, oh, yeah. uh, and beat him up. So I, I really appreciate that. And hopefully yeah, we'll my pleasure. see if it fall in. Uh, yeah, it was fun. I, I think that'd be good. I think fall in is the, is the place for us to, to play this some more. We don't have any events we have to do. We're not on tap to um, to run streaming or anything like that. So I think we ought to just sit down and, and play some Missile Threat. And for all the listeners, if you want to harass us and make fun of us, then watch how bad I am at Missile Threat. Uh, I'm sure I will get tabled in the first game or so. <laughs> come do, come watch that. And then, then you can play Casey and you know, see how good he is. <laughs> All right. Well, awesome, guys. Uh, I want to thank our listeners. Please go out, like, subscribe to the podcast, uh, refer us. It, it's kind of funny the number of people, as Steve has talked about when he went to Historicon, that they're playing literally the same games we play. And he goes, so you guys have heard about the Lead Pursuit podcast? And they're like, Lead Pursuit who? <laughs> so uh, in your gaming groups, talk about the podcast. Obviously, we talk more than Blood Red Skies. We talk Missile Threat. We talk some history. Uh, we even teach Steve some history and uh, <laughs> get him to learn some things. Uh, but please like and share the podcast and uh, and help us spread the news of aerial wargaming. It is a niche field, uh, but there's a lot of people that are that are out there that want to play those games. And we haven't given up on some of these games. So uh, yeah, so yeah, thanks, Brett. He reminds me we are the 110th highest history podcast in Sweden. 110th. We're, we're somebody important in Sweden. Uh, so thanks to the guys at Podcast Stats for reminding me of that. I'm like, if, if that's the best stat I've got, I'm, I'm, I'm screwed. Anyway, so thanks, everyone. Uh, I would leave us with a pithy saying, I don't have one. So, Steve, I'm going to leave you with it. What do you want to say? Man, I, I don't know. I got to go with the tried and true, Doug. Keep climbing for advantage. to realize I'm not the biggest Grogdard out there. Because when I go look at somebody's post in ConSim World, I just care whether the game's punched or unpunched. I just care if it's decent quality. I look at the photos. There are dudes that will literally not bid on a game because the counters have not been pre-rounded. Or guys that will jack the price up because they have already pre-rounded the counters. I'm like, bro, I'm buying an Avalon Hill game. Your labor to round the counters, I don't care about. <laughs> I'm not paying that. That's insane to me that people even do that. I mean, I, I thought that was I a just, joke. Oh no! Oh. About the about the corner rounding. <laughs> I thought you were making a joke. Is that real? Yeah, counter clippers. <laughs> they they have these counter clippers, industrial strength counter clippers, and they clip every counter in a game to make the edges all nice and smooth and round and. Well, More whatever priority. makes them happy, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, <laughs> whatever does it for you. I mean, for Doug's sake, he's not a super grognard. You know, he knows an awful lot. I do. I, yeah. I didn't know we were going to start this podcast with a lie. <laughs> exactly. yeah. oh, oh, there's many lies in this podcast. Just wait till we get stuck. <laughs>